Open your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 4. I've been preaching now two weeks on Judges, and I'm just picking out four of the Judges to uh, deal with their lives. And uh, we began last week with Ehud, and now I'm dealing with Deborah this week. Next week we'll deal with Gideon, and then the final week I'll deal with Samson. Who Samson takes up the largest portion of the stories in the book of Judges. But I don't know, I didn't really intend it to fall out this way, but it has. It's like today I'm really preaching to the women. Is that all right? So, so you know, if the men can't amen some of this, surely you women can amen some of it. All right? So just go ahead and shout me down, and if you men give you a problem, I'm sure you can handle them anyhow, but... And then next week, we're going to talk about Gideon, and I might just preach straight to the men. All right? Because Gideon's, that's a good word for men in Gideon. Okay, in Judges, about Gideon. Not in Gideon. It's like the book of Gideon. The book of Hezekiah, right? There isn't such a thing. Just so you know. (laughs) Judges chapter 4, and let's read this great story. Judges chapter 4, verse 1. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. What do you know? It's a pattern in the book of Judges. God blesses them. They're free. They're experiencing prosperity. They're experiencing safety. They, They have their own rule of their kingdom. And then they backslide. And they fall into sin and fall into old patterns and fall into idol worship. And then God takes down the hedge of protection and allows invading armies to come in and take over. Then after a while they get tired of that, they cry out to the Lord again. And I know this is Old Testament kingdom stuff, but it really has application to our modern spiritual lives. That when you fall back into those old patterns and you fall back into those old ways, you really tear down the the hedge of protection around you, and then the enemy comes in and sets up his kingdom again in your life. You got set free from all those things, hopefully. And now you don't want to go back to it, you know? Somebody says, well, Satan never had a part in my life, Pastor Hans. Yeah, right. Verse 2, so the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harosheth, Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron. And for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. Now notice, so she's a judge. It's used here. I'm reading New King James. She was a judge, okay? But what's particular and peculiar about Deborah is she was a prophetess who judged. So she's evidently giving prophetic direction to the nation, okay? Verse 6 Verse 5, rather. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Ahinoam, or Abinoam, rather, from Kedesh, 
and Naphtali and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jobin's army, and with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. There's the word. She goes and gets this, this military leader, Barak, and says, Now you go, I'll draw out your enemy commander, and God's going to give you the victory, and he's going to give you the enemy, and he's going to, God's going to place him right into your hand. So what does Barak do? Verse 8. Barak said, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And so she said to him, You loser Man up. Sorry. I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. I'm going to leave it right there. I'm going to leave it right there. Okay, there's a huge pink elephant in the room here in this story. And, and here it is. God's going to use a woman to do his will. Her name is Deborah. There's a huge pink elephant in the room in this story. God's going to use another woman named Jael to finish off the deal. There's another pink elephant in this room. you got a man who is not confident enough to go do what the woman prophetess, I'm going to stop right there because we're going to get in trouble, men. But what the woman prophetic lady was telling him to do. Okay, so here's my deal. Here's my deal. God uses whoever he wants to use. I'm just going to say it. God uses whoever he wants to use. Okay, he uses who, can you lift your hand and say, I am a whoever. Okay, look at your neighbor and say, you are a whoever or whomever. God uses whoever he wants to use. Okay, so I'm going to take this in a way that's maybe, maybe you've never heard it. Maybe I'll step on your toes. If I do, just deal with it. First of all, God uses Deborah to accomplish his will and bring freedom to Israel. God uses Deborah as an answer to prayer. Remember, Ehud was an answer to prayer. All of the judges are answers to prayer. Someone is in bondage. The nation needs help. Someone is crying out to the Lord. They become the answer to people's prayer. So Deborah was an answer to the prayers of the people. She doesn't go out into military battle. She evidently wasn't a military commander. And in those days, it was... That made sense. This was a patriarchal society where men went to war. And so that wasn't her deal. But she was hearing from the Lord, and she was telling the military commander, Barak, what he should do. Okay? And then, you know, God has a funny sense of humor, but when the guy kind of hesitated, when Barak kind of hesitated and said, well, I'll go to battle if you go, then she says, you're not going to get the glory. You're not getting the glory out of this, but some women are going to take the glory for this one. Thank you very much. And it's exactly what happens. God uses 
Deborah to bring freedom to Israel. God uses whoever he chooses. And if that's the case, it means each one of us in here are a candidate or is a candidate to be used of God. Okay. Second thing, God used women in the New Testament. He used women in the New Testament. We think of Tabitha in Acts chapter 9. Mary, the mother of Mark and sister of Barnabas in Acts chapter 12. Rhoda in Acts chapter 12. Lydia in Acts 16. Junia, Trophina, Tryphosa, Persis, Rufus' mother, and Julia in Romans chapter 16. Priscilla, also called Prisca in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Timothy 4. Chloe, a feminine uh, name meaning green herb, interesting, in 1 Corinthians 1. Nympha in Colossians 4. Lois and Eunice in the life of uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, Aphia in Philemon 1, and Euodia and Sanctity with Paul's fellow laborers in Philippians chapter 4. So God used women throughout the New Testament. The third thing is God used women throughout history and has used women, is continuing to use women throughout history. And I want to just focus in a little bit on the particular holiness and Pentecostal movement over the last 100 years in American history, or last, actually last 170 years or so. So the holiness movement began in America, really birthed by John Wesley in the 1700s. John Wesley was an Anglican priest, and he was really a revivalist, and he came to America and had great revival meetings in America. Out of that was birthed the Methodist Church, which became the largest church body in America in the 1800s. But then as the 1800s, the mid-1800s came, and the latter 1800s, the Methodist Church, uh, a lot of people started leaving it or started wanting to go back to the roots of John Wesley. But notice this. Uh, Wesley said, Wesley actually used women in ministry. And someone challenged him on the idea why he would use women at all in his ministry. And he said, well, because God owns them in the saving of their souls, and who am I to withstand God? Just think about it. God owns them, and who am I to withstand God? And the early holiness preachers advocated this, this passage, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. So let me point out just a few. Hannah Whithall Smith who became part of what we call the Keswick Theology and Higher Life Movement. She wrote the book, The Christian Secret of a Happy Life, maybe you've seen. Her and her husband were holiness preachers. Phoebe Palmer and her husband, who was a medical doctor, was a holiness preacher. And it was reported that she had 25,000 conversions in her ministry and experiences of people receiving sanctification. She wrote many great books, The Way of Holiness, The Guide to Holiness, The Promise of the Father. Catherine Booth, who was the wife of General William Booth, they founded the Salvation Army together. And a lot of people don't realize it, but they were holiness preachers. And Catherine Booth worked tirelessly for equal rights, authority, responsibilities for women, even wrote a tract called Female Ministry in which she laments the inequity of men or inequity of women as a remarkable device of the devil, she called it. 
And what's interesting is out of that movement, I have this theory about history, right or wrong, this, out of that movement, out of the mid-1800s, came the second great awakening in America. Really fired, in part at least, by these holiness groups and holiness preachers. And out of that movement in the mid-1800s came at least, first of all, great revival, great soul winning, but also child labor laws were passed in America. The women's right to vote was passed in America. Slavery was abolished in America, though it took war to bring that about. And alcohol was made illegal in America. All of those things were the fruits of revival led by men and women who were on fire and had a passion for God's holiness. Because revival isn't just what happens in a church. True revival impacts a community. It impacts the cities. It impacts a nation. It impacts laws, legislation. It's shifted when people experience true revival. Can somebody shout amen? Amen. And then out of that early holiness movement, certain of these holiness camps and holiness segments started receiving incredible experiences of the Holy Spirit. One man named Charles Parham was a holiness preacher who led a Bible college in Topeka, Kansas called Bethel Bible College. He had also, previous to that, opened a healing home in Topeka, Kansas. And during this time, he had his students read through the book of Acts and say, I'm going on a trip. When I come back, I'm going to ask each of you, what is, is there any, is there any sign that the Holy Spirit has come into the life of a believer in power, as we see in Acts, Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 19. Is there a true sign that the Holy Spirit has come? So when he came back from his trip, all of the students said unanimously, the one sign we see appearing over and over and over in all these comings of the Spirit is they speak in unknown tongues. So a woman named Agnes Osmond grew up in rural Nebraska, became part of Parham's Bible College. She was out of the Methodist Episcopal Church. She had spent time in A.B. Simpson's training center, who was another holiness preacher, wrote a great book on healing, by the way. And she came there, and at the end of 1900, on the watch night service, New Year's Eve, they had a prayer meeting. And she said, at the end of the year on watch night, we had a blessed service, praying that God's blessings might rest upon us as the new year came. And she said, during the first day of 1901, the presence of the Lord was with us in a marked way, stilling our hearts to wait on him for greater things. Charles Parham said, I laid hands upon her. He said, I'd scarcely completed three dozen sentences when a glory fell upon Agnes. A halo seemed to surround her head and face, and she began speaking the Chinese language for three days and was unable to speak English. She said, as his hands were laid upon my head, the Holy Spirit fell upon me and I began to speak in tongues glorifying God. And I talked several languages and it was clearly manifest when a new dialect was spoken. And I had the added joy and glory of, that my heart longed for in the depth of the presence of the Lord, which I had never known. Agnes Osmond. Pentecostal historians mark her as maybe the first in America to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues. Though tongues has happened throughout the history of the church, there was a marked difference 
when the new year came and 1901 came. There was a, there was a huge outpouring that began. Cherokee, North Carolina, Topeka, Kansas, Houston, Texas, Los Angeles, California, Sub-Sahara, Africa, Korea. Many different experiences started happening like this simultaneously around the world. And now we have hundreds upon hundreds of millions of people who flow in the charismatic gifts and tongues and prophecy and casting out devils and healing the sick all around the world that came in this tidal wave of the outpouring of spirit. And someone says, well, why did God wait till now to do it? Why did he wait till the last 100 years? I believe like the old timers, I believe it's because we're in the last of the last days. And he said, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. That happened in Acts chapter 2. But I think now we're in an exponential outpouring of his spirit, and it's happening all over the globe. And you and I get to be part of it. Hallelujah. Somebody should be excited about that. If there's a day to be living, it's now, man. If there's an exciting day to be living, it's now that God is pouring out of his spirit upon all flesh. Does he still do this, Hans? Absolutely. I've been in rooms full of Catholics that receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit like boom. I've been overseas and see whole altars receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit in foreign countries. He's still doing it. Agnes Osmond. Number two, Lucy Farrow. Lucy Farrow was born into slavery in Virginia. And somewhere along the way, she moved to Houston around 1900 and became the pastor of a small black holiness congregation. And while in Houston, Farrow met Charles Parham from Topeka, Kansas, who came there to hold a meeting. She was baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke with other tongues and went back with Parham and his wife and became a governess in their house. She left a young man to pastor the church in her absence in Houston named William J. Seymour. William J. Seymour was, had one eye. At some point later, William Seymour moved to Los Angeles and began pastoring a small storefront church in Los Angeles. Though he had never received the baptism of the Spirit or speaking in tongues, he believed in it and preached it. Some people got mad at him and didn't accept it, So one man and his family, a man named Edward Lee, invited William J. Seymour to come and hold meetings at his house at 214 Bonnie Bray Street. That becomes famous. William J. Seymour said, I know who we need. We need Lucy Farrow, my old pastor. So they got her a train ticket and brought Lucy Farrow there. She came to the Lee house on Bonnie Bray Street. And she said when she came to the door, Mr. Lee opened the door and greeted her and said, Sister, if you will lay hands on me right now, I'll get my baptism. She said, I can't do this as the Lord says so. So they had dinner. And at dinner, she stood up from the table, left her chair and walked over to the head of the table where Mr. Lee was, laid hands on him, and he fell out of his chair onto the floor. And while lying on the floor, began speaking in tongues. This began a three-year revival, day and night, where people from all over the globe came out of Azusa Street in California, in, in Los Angeles, and went all over the world. The elephant in the room is that a lady, a former slave from the state of Virginia, is the one who brought the fire and ignited that whole movement. 
Somebody shout hallelujah. Number three, Jeannie Seymour. Jeannie Seymour was the wife of William J. Seymour. She ended up taking the ministry and became co-pastor of the church. And once he died, she became the pastor of the church. April 9, 1906, Jeannie said, I was praising the Lord from the depth of my, depth of my heart at home. And when the evening came and we attended the meeting, the power of God fell and I was baptized in the Holy Ghost and fire. I sang under the power of the Spirit in many languages, the interpretation, both words and music I'd never heard before. And in the home where the meeting was being held, the Spirit led me to play the piano, where I played and sang under inspiration, although I had not learned to play. There's a man that I know and I preached for him recently in the month of July named Don Warren. He's the president of the United Christian Church and Ministerial Association that I've been ordained with for many, many years before I ever came to the PH. He's played organ for about 60 years, and he traveled. He's a legend, and he was initially a guitar player, and he started traveling with an evangelist when he was a teenager playing guitar, and he's a, he's a marvelous guitar player. But one night, the organist didn't show up, and the evangelist looked at him and said, Don, you're going to have to play the organ. He said, I don't know how to play the organ. So they prayed for Don, and he went over and sat down and fluently began playing and played for 60 years. Let me tell you something. Talent's good. It's a whole different thing when we talk about anointing. Talent's good. I've been around a lot of talented people. I've played with a lot of talented guitarists and musicians and singers. But when you've got someone who's anointed, that breaks yokes and sets the captives free. Talent can't set people free. Anointing sets people free. Now it's good if you're anointed and talented. We'd rather hear that than somebody who can't sing on key, but brother, they got the anointing. <laughs> Preaching's like that too. There are a lot of people who can give speeches or prepare sermons, but when the anointing comes, it sets people free. The other just entertains us or bores us to tears. Well, somebody shout hallelujah. It can happen, man. God can set on you what He wants on you when the Holy Ghost comes on you. He can give gifts and talents and amazing things in your life. Come on, raise your hand and say, I am a candidate. You are. A, you're in this room because of divine design. It wasn't just by chance you got out of bed and stumbled to Fountain of Life Church. God is working in the atmosphere. He's working in the heavens. And He's working a plan for you. If you'll just open up the door, well, and let Him do it. Somebody shout amen. amen. Number four, I'm just provoking you. I'm, one young guy talked to me years ago. I was able to perform the marriage with he and his wife. And he said, man, I told a friend, if you go here, Pastor Hans, it's like you had a history lesson. And you know what I thought when he said that? History excites me. All those excited over history, give me a shout. Hey, wow, all right. Okay, sorry. Amy Simple McPherson. Amy Simple McPherson. In Los Angeles in 1919, McPherson launched a series of meetings that really catapulted her to national fame. Within a year, she was filling the largest auditoriums all across the nation. People, she was a very dramatic speaker who used like uh, props and plays and just amazing things, okay? She built a, a building called the Angelus Temple. I heard an angel came and gave her the design to it, which held 5,300 people. 
And for every for three years, she preached every day and three times on Sunday to crowds over 5,000. One of my former mentors, Dr. Elias Smalky, went to Bible college there. They started this Life Bible College in Los Angeles. And he said, I used to clean the altar where Amy Simple McPherson would preach. And he said, brother, no one had miracles like her. Just incredible miracles. She started the Foursquare denomination. Foursquare meaning Jesus is the Savior. He's the divine healer. He's baptized with the Holy Ghost, and he's the soon-coming king. Many of you have maybe heard of Jack Hayford. Jack Hayford's a minister out of that group as well as many other great people. But a few years ago, my wife and I went to Los Angeles, California. because I've only been to California one time in my life. I've been around the globe otherwise, but never to California. So I, we finally went a few years ago with Doug and Lori Eccles. And while we were there, I told Doug, I said, dude, we've got to go to L.A. We're this close. So we drove to L.A. And, of course, as soon as Doug and I got in the city, we went to see where Azusa Street was. And then we wanted to go to Amy Simple McPherson's Angelus Temple, which is still operating with uh, Tommy Barnett's son, Matthew Barnett, who pastors it now. And so we went there, and we were able to see this Angelus Temple, and it was really cool. And then next to it, they've renovated her house. And we went in her house and took a tour. We played her piano and the old organ she used for meetings, and it was, it was just incredible. And while we were there, the, the lady who was giving us a tour, I asked her, I said, have you ever heard of Elias Malky? She said, Elias, we went to Bible college together. And so we just had a camaraderie. And then we learned while we were there that Frank Gifford and his family grew up in that church. And then Anthony Quinn, the famous actor, was raised across the street and grew up in that church. And on and on and on. Every week she would have a lunch meeting with Charlie Chaplin, who was like the greatest worldwide megastar of the day. But during the Great Depression, she fed 1.5 million people meals and had miracles, and had signs and wonders, and saw thousands of people saved. Thompson, many of y'all use a Thompson chain reference Bible. Mr. Thompson was one of the Bible college professors that worked with her. On and on and on, absolutely amazing. Come on, somebody say Amy. Amy. Simple McPherson. One more I'm going to throw at you is Catherine Kuhlman. In the 20th century, God used Catherine Kuhlman Years ago, we were traveling with Mike Shreve, who was an evangelist who preached here on July 4th, and I started with Mike. And when I was traveling with Mike, we went to a church in Youngstown, Ohio, and he preached in that church, and it was a church that Catherine Kuhlman had built and pastored. And I thought it was just amazing, and I'm like, I got to learn about her life. She had an electric personality, a unique style of dressing, speaking, and she really only became popular when she was older. And she would do a radio broadcast. You can get on YouTube now and still listen to this radio broadcast. I love listening to it. Because she's like, the Holy Spirit is here. That's the way she, she talked in these dramatic tones. And Benny Hinn really mentored under her. And if you've ever seen a Benny Hinn meeting, you've basically seen a Catherine Kuhlman meeting. It was the same type of flow. But nonetheless... I'm friend, I was friends with a guy named J. Rodman Williams, who was a theology professor at Regent University, who was a Presbyterian, very conservative Presbyterian. And in the 1960s, God baptized him in the Holy Spirit, and he kind of got the left foot out of the Presbyterian seminary. And he went and started teaching in a charismatic seminary in Southern California. And he started traveling the globe with Catherine Kuhlman. 
with another great Pentecostal leader named David Duplessis, a South African. And he said, I was stand, standing on the stage with Catherine Kuhlman ministering, and me and Brother Duplessis were there. And he said, I looked at Brother Duplessis and said, you know what? I've never fallen out in the spirit. Think that'll ever happen to me? And he said, as soon as those words left my mouth, Catherine turned and went and pointed at him. And he said, I fell directly out in the spirit right on the stage by her point. Incredible miracles. Incredible miracles. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I was in Africa a few years ago with a guy. And he told me, he said, and this guy's kind of skeptical of a lot of things, but he told me, he said, I'm telling you, if there's one person who moved in the miraculous, it was Catherine Kuhlman. said she came to my hometown. And she came to my hometown, and he said there was a guy who had had a terrible car accident who was a business owner in town, and they brought him up on stage, and he was in a full body cast. And Catherine prayed for him and said, cut the body cast off. And they cut it off of him, and the man had fully been healed. He could move, he could walk. And my friend said it made it was it became a story in the local newspaper. Now Catherine said, my good friend Kent Christmas told me this. Said Catherine Kuhlman said, "I was God's fourth choice." Maybe she felt there were some Baracks out there who should have done it. But they didn't answer the call, so God used her. I don't know what her thinking was. I'm telling you, God uses who He wants to. God can use you, man, woman, child, boy, girl, senior citizen. He can use you. He can use you if you just make yourself available to Him. Let me really step on your toes good before I quit here. Let me tell the story of Deborah, though. So what happens? Barak goes down, and he routs the enemy. Totally wins the battle. And then Sisera, the head of the Canaanite army, ran and he fled to the tent of Jael and Heber. And Jael was a woman, her husband's name was Heber, and he comes to the tent and he says, would you hide me? She says, sure, come in, lay down right here. She covers him up. And he says, I'm dying of thirst. Could I have some water? She does better than that. She brings him out milk. I mean, these are real mountain people, right? Buttermilk and cornbread. But brings him out milk that he can drink and covers him up. And he says, listen, if anyone comes and asks for me, you just tell them I'm not here. No problem. I got you covered. So she, she waits till he goes to sleep. She takes out a tent peg. And she walks over and places that tent peg gently on his temple and takes some t- hammer or something and drives it all the way through into the ground. Can somebody say bad to the bone? And I know that's, that's rated R. That's a rated R story in the Bible. But nonetheless, it was an answer to prayer of God's people and God won the victory for His people through this lady driving the tent peg through his head. And in the next chapter, Deborah sings this song and really is praising Jael for her bravery and her duty. So in the end, Barak didn't get the credit. It was really Deborah and Jael, two women, who got the credit for what went on that day. Somebody shout amen. Let me just deal with a few things. The church has told people through history that, that, that's told women that they shouldn't work outside the home. 
And they based it, based it basically upon Titus chapter 2, verse 5, where the Bible says that women should take care of their homes. Well, that's the truth. Women should take care of their homes. And then also if you look at Proverbs chapter 31, you know, that adds to the argument that women shouldn't work outside the home. But that's really an incorrect interpretation of that passage to come up with that. In Orthodox Jewish communities, the women often work and they make things happen because the men study all the time. It is true because of ambition or materialism that some Christian women have neglected their children, but that's not because the Holy Spirit led them. They were just pursuing ambition or materialism as well as men have neglected their families through ambition or materialism and not obeying the voice of the Holy Spirit. So rather than placing a legalistic burden on women by telling them that having a career is ungodly, maybe we should tell both men and women to just submit their lives and their plans to the Holy Spirit's direction. And if God wants to use you to work, to be a professor, to be a teacher somewhere, to be a university president, to be a politician... You go do what God's calling you to do. Also, we've said women are not equipped to assume leadership roles. And some have said that. But you know, 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul said, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. But many theologians believe that this passage was addressing an isolated situation in the Ephesian church. And they came to this conclusion after studying all of the other myriad of references to women in the Bible who exercise some sort of spiritual authority. Jesus issued his first gospel commission to women. In Matthew chapter 28, both men and women were empowered to preach on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 through 4, because he says upon your maidens and handmaidens, or upon your men servants and handmaidens, I will pour out of my spirit. Priscilla, Chloe, Phoebe were leaders in the early church, and one woman, Junia, if you look into the Greek, has the, the, has the form of apostle, apostolos on her name. The promise of the prophet Joel was that on sons and daughters, the Spirit would be poured out and they would prophesy. So I don't know, you know, I'm just saying, what about 1 Timothy 2.12 then? Can a woman not teach or preach to men in a setting? In their book, I Suffer Not a Woman, I Suffer Not a Woman, Richard and Catherine Kroger explained that certain worship practices involving female priestesses of Diana had invaded the first century church. And these priestesses promoted blasphemous ideas about sex and spirituality, and they sometimes performed rituals in which they pronounced curses on men and declared feminine superiority. Some scholars believe Paul was addressing this and saw it creeping into the church in Ephesus. And said, I do not allow a woman to teach these cultic heresies, nor do I allow them to usurp authority from men by performing pagan rituals. That's one interpretation. I have been to Ephesus twice. And the last time I was there, I toured it with Mark Wilson, who's a scholar. He came out of Regent University. I had class with him 20-some years ago. And we walked into these terrace houses that were on the hillside. It's where the wealthy people lived. And in these terrace houses, each of them would have a large, uh, a large room, maybe the size of this stage. And it was ornately designed. You could see the remnants of pictures painted on the wall or mosaic flooring. And they were, these were wealthy people. And when we got in that and I looked at it, Mark said, this is where the church would have met. And it lit me up. He said, this is where the church would have met because for the first 300 years, the church had no physical buildings. There were some attempts to build buildings. The Roman government leveled them. 
So the church didn't take over buildings until later. They took over the Latin basilica. The term basilica wasn't used for church. It was a public building. They took over those, and that's how we adopted that word basilica for church. Y'all can pay me later for that. (laughs) So they'd be sitting on the floor, husband and wife having church. Holy Spirit is moving. Somebody's prophesying. Somebody has a word. Paul said, have order in this setting. Let two or three prophesy. Let them go one by one and let you others judge over here. And in a society where women were largely uneducated, my friend the scholar said, this is what was going on. The women would be like, what's he saying? Could you explain this to me? I don't understand what's going on. Paul says, hey, why don't you stay silent? And why don't you wait till you're home to ask your husband what's going on? Because it's causing a problem in these house church settings. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, gosh, thank you. Thank you, Lord. And it really gave context to all of that. So I'm just throwing that out there for you guys and gals to think about. And the women got real quiet on me. I don't know what happened. but (laughs) Big picture, God uses whomever he wants to use. So why don't we take off the limitations today and let God use us however he wants to? God may be causing you, calling you to start a business. God may be calling you to be a missionary. I was amazed. I went to India a few years ago, and we went to a rural, um, okay, they were, they were true Indian Indians there. Like they were natives there, even to the Indians in this rural state that we went to. But that's the state that the early Pentecostal holiness missionaries went to. They went to the most remote, poorest state they could find. And you know who they were? And, and, and when I learned this, it freaked me out. Many of the early missionaries for our movement were single women. Single women who went and gave their lives. We had many go to Africa. Many go to Asia. Gave their entire lives. Church of God. There's a famous lady in the Church of God who was a missionary. The Church of God wouldn't let her go. She said, I'll go anyhow. And she went over and became a great missionary to the Palestinians and still in the West Bank. Come on, God can use whoever he wants to use. If he wants to use you, let him do it. Can somebody shout amen? amen? If he used Moses, who was a murderer running for his life and possibly a stutterer, he can use you. If he used Jeremiah, who said, I'm too young, Lord, I can't do this. God said, shut your mouth. You're not too young. If I'm calling you, I knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. And my anointing and calling was upon your life. If he's calling you, he can use you. If he used Paul, who was basically a murderer and persecutor of the church, he can use you. If he used the fish to swallow the prophet Jonah so that revival could happen in another land. He can certainly use you. If he used a donkey to speak to Balaam, I'm not going to use the King James term. 
Just a donkey to speak to Balaam, surely he can use you. Women were the last ones with Jesus at the cross. They were the first ones at the tomb. They were the first to see the resurrected Jesus. They were the first to announce the resurrection to the disciples. And in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, there were 120 gathered men and women. And even Mary, the mother of Jesus, was in the mix. All I'm saying is God can use anybody he wants to. Let's open up... Fling up, fly up your sails and let the wind catch it and say, God, use me, God. I want to be used in this era. I'm going to take the limitations off my life and I say, God, send me and I will go. Like Isaiah, I say, here I am, Lord. Send me. Somebody give the Lord a shout of praise. Hallelujah. Come on, raise your hand and say, here I am, Lord. Everybody stand on your feet this morning. Hallelujah. Come on, hands up, raise. God, here I am. Use me, Lord. God may be calling you. Maybe he's not calling you to preach. Maybe he's calling you to start a business. Maybe he's calling you to go back to school. Maybe he's calling you to witness to your neighbor. Maybe he's calling you to teach. Maybe he's calling you to be a missionary. I don't know, but just whatever he's calling you to do, don't deny it. Hallelujah. Here am I, God. Send me. Here am I, God. Send me. Here am I, God. Thanks so much for watching us online. We're so blessed to to live in an era where we can come to you uh, on this platform and be able to preach the gospel and worship with you right in your home. I don't know where you are today with the Lord, but uh, I want to close this time with prayer. And whatever needs you have, let's bring them to the Lord right now, but especially if you're not serving the Lord. If you've never accepted Christ into your heart, right now's the time to do that. All you have to do is open your heart and say, Lord, come in. I believe Jesus is Lord. Forgive me of my sins. I want to change. You make that decision in your heart, then God's going to come in and he's going to do the rest. Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you'll be saved. In the book of Acts, it said, call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. So let's pray for these two issues right now, okay? Pray with me. Father in heaven, I open up my heart. I repent of all my sin. And I ask Jesus into my life right now. And I thank you that my sins are gone. And I thank you that my life has changed. In Jesus' name. Now, Lord, I bring before you all the needs of the audience that's watching right now. Everyone who's hurting, they're struggling, they have issues going on. We bring those needs to the throne of God in the name of Jesus. And we ask you, Father, to meet them, to bless right now through the power of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody can say amen. Hey, we love you. Thank you for following us. Thank you for watching us online. And I hope to see you again.